Hi there. Thanks for joining our podcast at Renew Church OC, a church for imperfect people only. I'm Pastor Wilson. We're continuing our how to series in James with our new segment, How to Think Differently. It's easy to have our secular culture and media dictate how we think, but God wants us to think differently than our society, even if we end up with the same values or application. 2020 has been a confusing year in so many major aspects of life, but I'm thankful that James was written as wisdom literature and designed to help us think differently. Finally, we have a few links that I'd love for you to check out on the description page. If you want to support our church, there's a PayPal link there, but mostly we'd love to connect with you. So fill out a Google form or join a live watch party when we're premiering our sermon on Facebook, Sundays at 10.30. Lastly, I'm seeing podcast listeners from all over the world, like Canada, Russia, Australia, and Ireland. Send me an email at wilson at renewchurchoc.com, and I'd love to talk with you and hear your story. Hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, so as all of you know, 2020 has been completely insane. I've been trying to pitch to some of my friends of doing the board game 2020 as a Kickstarter, where it's kind of like the board game life. You're just trying to make it around the board, but you're trying to make it to 2021. And there's all these effect cards like pandemic, recession, um, fires, earthquake, hurricane, and... Um, and it feels like a board game, doesn't it? I think I feel like we truncated like 20 to 30 years of bad stuff into 2020. Um, a couple weeks ago, there was an earthquake. And literally, as the earth was shaking, I just started laughing a little bit because I'm like, of course, of course, 2020, there's going to be an earthquake. So so we've just been through a whirlwind. And in in light of 2020, I just think about how we've experienced so much, you know, ups and downs. Uh, it just feels like we're in a fictional novel. And that's really a big part of why we're in James. James, the, th- the theme that we're moving into is wisdom in the midst of chaos. Wisdom in kind of all the things that life throws our way. And as we c- complete this book, as we finish this off, we're in James chapter 5, 13 through 15, and it kind of summarizes all of these different seasons. It talks about what to do in trouble, when you're happy, when you're sick, when you've fallen into sin. Right? So in verse 13 it says, Is anyone amongst you in trouble, having a hard time, you know, suffering from economic or physical um, or, or emotional unrest? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone amongst you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. So we see in James kind of these different seasons in life whether it's trouble and hardship, whether it's happiness, being rich, things going your way, 
whether it's falling sick or being in sin, life has these rhythms and seasons that we all experience. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 through 8, puts it this way. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. So if you're an older person and you read these words, there's people and imagery and memories that comes, comes up. A time to be born and a time to die. I think about Levi and my grandparents. A time to plant and a time to um, uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, like 2020. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. When we think about all the seasons of life that we go through, whether it's truncated into a year or spread out in a lifetime, there are many seasons that a person walks through. And one of the temptations and lies that Satan uses is to actually convince us that life doesn't change, that there's a permanence to it. If you read the Scriptate letters by C.S. Lewis, um, this kind of senior demon is tutoring this junior demon in how to tempt a Christian into sin. And in one of the chapters, he tells, he advises the junior demon to convince the Christian that there's permanence in uh, the, the valleys of life, the hard times, the troubles. Because if you can convince the Christian that those times are permanent, they'll go into despair. They'll give up hope. Uh, they'll stop trying. But he's also telling the demon to convince them in their good times that things are permanent as well. Because if you can convince the Christian that everything's supposed to go their way, when the rhythm of life takes us into the valley, into the hard times, the Christian becomes dismayed. They start believing that God isn't with them, that God's betrayed them. And I think that's a lot of how we sell the Christian faith, isn't it? That the Christian faith is, can feel like the straight line of always moving upward. At least TBN talks about the Christian faith that way. That the more you walk with God, the closer you are, that you'll be rich, that things will go well, that uh, you'll have his favor and everything you want out of life will come. But having that type of faith is extremely dangerous. Having a faith where you believe and you're staking your relationship with God in the good times will become completely disheveled and turned upside down when again the rhythms of life happen when the seasons of life take over and the things that we love um, the good times become hard so what is what is the trajectory of our faith and the purpose of life if it's not to have as many great moments as possible right what are we gunning for if it's not the mountaintop experience 
um, getting higher and higher and having everything go our way. What's God's will if it isn't to make us happy all the time? Well, Dave put it this way two weeks ago. He says God's will is a relationship with him. And I think if we really believe that, then, then it gives meaning to the difficult parts of life, to the sick, the troubled, and even the parts of life where we're caught in sin. If God's will is just for things to get better every single day, every single year, then the times where it's hard feel meaningless and arbitrary or outside of God's will. But if it's just, if it's intimacy, if his will is us trusting him more, clinging to him tighter, loving him deeper, and experiencing his love, then we can leverage every season to grow closer to God. We can discover his love in every moment. It gives purpose to the hard times. You know, when I think about 2020, I wonder if we feel like much of the year was just wasted, was purposeless, was like, man, all my goals got stopped. Everything I wanted out of this year didn't happen. And so it just feels like a complete waste. Well, I think a goal-driven life would make 2020 meaningless. But a God-driven life where we're desiring nearness with him, there can be nearness in every season. There's nearness in sickness. There's nearness in quarantine. There's nearness in boredom. There's nearness in joblessness. God draws near to us and draws us towards him through every season. You see the difference there? In, in one framework, if life is just about being happy and mountaintops, so much of life feels wasted and meaningless. But if life is about leveraging every season towards God, then every season has a purpose. So for us, in a unique way, to find Jesus. So that's really my sermon today. The bulk of it is to walk through trouble, kind of hard times, happiness, the times where we feel rich, sickness and sin. And to say, how do we leverage each of those seasons to draw near to God? How do we, instead of being a victim of those seasons, use them, um, have them be tools in which we find God in every season of our life. Well, for me, the worst part of 2020 was uh, going to the doctors just about a month ago and finding out that I have arthritis in both knees. Um, The doctor said that if I continued to play volleyball, um, you know, a couple of times a week, that I would need need full knee replacements in in my 40s, which is two years away. Um, He probably meant mid to late 40s. And the problem with that is that um, your knee replacement only lasts about 20 years. So I, if I get them at 45, I'll need them again at 65. And the second knee replacement, a lot of people don't recover f- from easily. Um, it's extremely complex. So a lot of orthopedic surgeons um, really only want you to get one knee replacement. And so again, in order for me to do this, I have to give a volleyball. 
if you know me, you know that volleyball is a very important part of my life, right? I love it. Uh, I feel like I discovered jumping and running and turning again. I couldn't do that in any other surface. But finding beach volleyball allowed me to really fall in love with the sport, fall in love with the community. I have like 50 friends out there where we go to birth each other's birthday parties, brunches. Um, yeah, it's like people that I, I've become close to. And I just love the beach. And so it's just been so life-giving to me. Man, I remember when he told me that uh, I had to give up volleyball. I just, I was just in shock. <laughs> and then I asked him the same question over and over again. And then I went to my car and I just started crying because I felt like something I loved um, so much was just being stripped away. Um, you know, when me and Nina talk about having a third kid, I'm like, third kid, but I also want to keep my volleyball schedule, you know, like. I don't know. <laughs> I think I love volleyball more than my third child. Um, so, again, that's how much I love volleyball. And when I think about trouble and sickness in our life, I think about the temptation of turning away from God. You see, God, God wants to leverage every season towards him. But Satan wants to leverage every season away from him. And so Satan wants us to blame him and curse him. He wants us to look at God and believe that God is the one responsible, inflicting pain and damage in our life. And it's one of the greatest deceptions he can have in your life is to turn you against God. It's, I think, one of the most devastating things that could happen in a parenting relationship, right? In my relationship with Liam, is if he's convinced that I'm against him. It's not, I, you know, I'm not perfect. I'm going to hurt him. But if he fundamentally believes that I'm against him, I mean, it's going to take out one of the greatest anchors in his life, his father. Satan wants to take out the greatest anchor in our life. If he can convince you that God is to blame, he's successful in that. You know, that's what um, Job's wife was trying to do. After everything Job suffered, he said, she said, curse God and die. But in, in James chapter 1, we're reminded that um, God cannot, that when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Meaning that God is never responsible for evil that happens in our life. He, he's not the one who breaks us. He's the one who puts us back together. He's not the one who inflicts sickness. He's the one, he's the great physician. He's not the one who um, discourages us. He's the one who gives us hope. And Satan wants to flip that on, on us. And we've seen that, right? We've seen ourselves get tempted to blame and curse God. To make him our enemy. Instead, we are to turn towards Jesus. In, in the hard times and sickness, um, that's our greatest moment of worship. You know, in Job chapter 2, verse 10, Job tells, responds to his wife, um, Should I not receive, should I receive good from the Lord and not evil? 
right? And he says, God gives and takes away. Blessed be his name. Some of the sweetest worship we'll ever be able to give to the Lord is worship in trouble. You know, that was, that was Satan's accusation of Job. It's like Job only loves you because you've given him everything. You don't know if he really loves you or if he just loves your stuff. And then when Job worships without anything, without his health, without his family, without his riches, that accusation ends. He knows, God knows, Satan knows that he just loves God. We don't know whether we're really worshiping God until everything's just kind of stripped away. During hardship and trouble, things are taken away from us. But in that worship, it's a worship of purity. It's, it's simplistic. It's just you and the Lord. During trouble, um, James exhorts us to pray, to cling to God, to go to him and, and cry out to him. And we see heroes of the faith do that over and over again. That he, he's the anchor, he's the tower, he's, he's our savior, he's our father. We can cry out to him. Also in, pur- in trouble, there's purpose. Um, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says that all things work f- for the good of those who love him. So even, even the trouble and sickness in our life is for our good. You know, I remember my mom talked about getting older. And she says one of the most beautiful things about aging is seeing so many storylines uh, conclude with God's grace and faithfulness. There's so many questions she had in the middle of her life that God answers in the end with purpose. Lastly, we've been, we introed this year with silence and solitude. And I think it's applicable in every season. You know, uh, one of the greatest way anchors and kind of, of all the crazy things in 2020 that, caused me anxiety and sadness and uh, confusion. Um, silence was, was, was one of the best practices that I've ever personally experienced, right? It, it, it caused me to turn away from my circumstance, to close my eyes and my ears and quiet my heart to everything else around me and just sit in front of Jesus, And say, Jesus, you're enough. In the midst of trouble and sickness, I still have you. And you're enough. You know, one of the easiest ways to spend time with me and Pastor Chrissy, uh, Rebecca's there, also about to graduate seminary, uh, Joey and Vivian, is to come in at 9 a.m. Monday through Friday. We get together. Uh, Most of us show up every day. And we just sit in silence before the Lord and we gather around his word. You know, you could see me Monday through Friday if you wanted to. We could talk after devotional most days. And, and that's been such an anchor for so many people at Renew. But also there's the good that 
Satan can use to draw us away from Jesus. Isn't that interesting? That good doesn't necessarily draw us towards God and trouble doesn't draw us away from God. Both can be used to find the Lord and Satan wants to use all those circumstances to move us away. And if you look at the history of Israel, it's actually um, the trouble that brought the Israelites back to the Lord, back to their knees, back to worshiping him. And it was actually the good that often led them away from God, led them into idolatry. If you look at First uh, and Second Kings, it's that rhythmic pat- pattern of, of idolatry because of the good. So a very common misconception. What are ways that Satan leverages good times, happy times, so that we walk away from Jesus? Well, it's easy to be self-sufficient. It's easy to say, man, like Luke 12, right? I stored up, I worked, it's for me, um, and God's not really in the picture. When, when we talk about our accomplishments and the best parts of our life, is it because of us? Do people walk away thinking you're smarter, uh, you worked hard, and you're the hero? Also, we could be self-centered. When we have a lot, when we're rich, when things are good, it could just be about my safety, my comfort, my happiness. How do I become more happy? And lastly, we can become very greedy in the good, in the rich, in the happy. It could just kind of never be enough. You know, whether our, if our stocks went up 50% this year, there's always 51 and 100%. There's always uh, 20,000 and 30,000 we can make. There was, there's always the next promotion or the next company that we can do a lateral uh, upward move in. There's always um, a bigger house to buy, a, a nicer model car. You know, when we anchor ourselves in the good, it's actually un, there's actually an unsatiable appetite that grows out of that. How do we leverage the good, the happy, the rich times towards the Lord? Well, first, we need to see the, the good parts of our life as God-given. You know, I think about um, how Solomon says that we're to acknowledge God in all of our ways, and he will make our path straight. In all of our success, in all the good things out of our, our lives, are we the hero or is God the hero? Is, is it because we're awesome or is it because God is gracious and he's handed those things to us? He gave it to us, right? You look at every narrative in the Old Testament, Moses, Elijah, David, Joseph. They're not the main characters. It's not really about them. David doesn't kill off Goliath and, and talk about what a great, you know, warrior he is, he immediately gives glory to God. It's about the Israelites' God beating the Philistine God. And he's just a representative of that, him and Goliath. And how are we representing God in the narrative of our life? Does the narrative of our life unfold the same way Old Testament narratives unfold, where God's the center and these other characters are just gifted, right, with, with power to split, split the Red Sea or to defeat giants or to manage uh, Egypt. 
um, how is God interlaced with our greatest achievements? And when we believe that the good things, the rich things in our life are God-given, it's evidenced towards our generosity. If we've received freely, we will give freely. If we believe it's our hands that have worked for those things, we'll continue to cling onto them. A way in which we fight self-centeredness is to look for the needs of those around us when we are rich and to give to them. So if you still have your job, look, at, look for people who, who lost theirs and ask, how can I be generous to them? If, if you have a lot of social status and people like you and, and you're magnetic and you have a, a core group of friends, look around and find someone who's newer to our church or who's a little awkward or who's alone and extend yourself to them. If you have the gift of medicine or teaching, if you have an engineering degree, if you're great at creating film or taking photos, how can you serve the city or serve a marginalized group uh, with those skills and gifts? And lastly, we fight greed with gratefulness. We come to a point where we say, God, I do have enough. I have more than enough. A greedy person will never say, I have more than enough. Will never say, I have enough. But a person who believes they've received more than they deserve will, will be grateful and content and not gun for the next thing. It's only when we're satisfied with what, we're, what we have. It's only when we're grateful that we give, right? When we're not grateful, when we're greedy, we never give. Lastly, in the good times, I implore you to do silence and solitude. We have a 9 a.m. <laughs> slot Monday through Friday. The Zoom call link is right on the description page. You can hang out with me every day. And more importantly, you can hang out with Jesus every day. See, in the bad times, things are stripped away. We go to silence and solitude and we meet with the Lord and we say, God, you're enough. In the good times, silence and solitude is about us stripping away all of our riches, richness. It's about carving out a space where none of those things infringe on our time with Jesus. Silence and solitude shuts us off to our accomplishments and our blessings, to all the things God's given us. And, and we create a space where it's just me and Jesus. It's a, voluntarily, it's a voluntary stripping of things so that I can put my eyes on God, right? The hard times is an involuntary stripping of the things that I cling on to. Silence and solitude on, in the good times is a voluntary stripping of the things that I cling on to to be with Jesus. And if you develop this space to meet the Lord, where, you, where it becomes familiar, where you're a native to sitting with Jesus, with nothing else. It's a place you visit through the course of your life, daily, weekly, monthly. That space becomes protected against the many seasons of our life 
we can walk into that space in good times and bad times and anxiety and depression and mourning and grieving and it remains the same because it's just me and Jesus and there's an anchoring force there there's a con consistency there that will keep you sane through all the changes of life changes in your relationship changes in your body changes in your wealth changes in where you live that space where you look at Jesus and he looks at you if you cultivate it and protect it it's the permanence uh, of our life and of eternity in the next sec section, we're going to talk about sin. Sometimes as a season, sometimes as a moment. Um, in verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways, will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. When we think about, when I think about the church, one thing I envied about the Catholic uh, church is, is that they had this confession booth. And one of the greatest functions of a priest, one of the reasons why you go to church was to confess your sins, which can be such a large departure from kind of evangelical church where people walk in with a plastic smile. No one really talks about the gritty stuff. Everyone just kind of, you know, shares how good their week was. When I thought about Renew and, and launching it, I wanted to make like confession booths. So we, uh, when we were doing live service, people would come up for communion, but myself, uh, the Changs, Pastor Chrissy, Dr. Ken, the Whitmores and the Johns would be around the confession booths offering prayer. And some of my most like important moments as a pastor was hearing people uh, confess their sins and desire forgiveness. Um, I think that's why what fellowship looks like. It's an experience that we should expect out of church is to bring some of the worst parts of our life and say, how do we wrestle with that together? When we started the sermon series in James, we did a sexual addiction um, segment, three weeks. If that's something you're struggling with, I would love for you to scroll back and listen to it. And out of that, we did a sexual addiction workshop where 20 men and 20 women joined. Um, and out of that came about 10 accountability groups. And we are like eight weeks into that almost. Um, it's been amazing to see our church that has always been pretty authentic and vulnerable be willing to share probably the darkest parts of, of our life with one another, to confess it. And I, I just think about our 40-person cohort, which I'm a part of as well. Like how many of us have experienced even just sharing this with another person for the first time, have experienced someone pray God's forgiveness over their life, 
have experienced freedom for longer than they've ever had, whether that's a week or a month or two months, have put up content blocker for the first time. I mean, I just really see Renew digging into this passage and, and having it become tangible. You know, when we sin, we're tempted to walk away from Jesus, to hide, um, to pay for it on our own by like doing good stuff. We're tempted to, instead of relying on his forgiveness, we're tempted to run towards our sin and addiction and kind of leave Jesus behind. But we can even use sin to walk towards God by confessing it to the Lord one another, by experiencing his forgiveness and gospel again. Isn't it so sweet to experience his love and forgiveness and to know that the gospel isn't just one moment of time when we give our life to Christ, but it's daily. It's a daily experience of him paying for our sins and gifting us forgiveness. It's choosing Jesus. And again, silence and solitude gives us the space to see the sin in our life. I think maybe the hardest part of silence, whether you know it or not, I think you, you avoid silence. I avoid silence because the first person we see isn't Jesus. The first person we see in silence is ourselves, is, is our sin. When we quiet our heart enough, we have to face ourselves. And sometimes we've been avoiding that mirror. But when we're willing to see um, our sin, we're also willing um, to take that first step into asking for forgiveness. I also think about how silence and solitude allows us to see the sins that aren't obvious, to see our blind spots. It, it focuses our attention to look at the things that aren't obvious and to allow Jesus to look at us as well. James also exhorts us to talk to others about their sin. And I think we're tempted to allow them to walk away from Jesus, to ignore their sin, to enable it. You know, I, um, I know that, you know, it's easy just to agree with your friend, to say, hey, I just want whatever, you know, you want. I just want you to be happy. But what if that's something damaging? Um, to not only accept them, but to accept their sin as well. Or to cancel them. When it's, when it's personal, when it hurts us, we're tempted just to um, end the relationship and walk away. But James calls us to bring them towards Jesus, to love them as a brother or sister, to commit to them relationally, to speak truth to them. But even more importantly, I think, is to fellowship with them. To say, as I share this truth, you don't have to improve on your own. I'm going to journey with you in it. You know, as a pastor, I've done church discipline a few times where a leader or a member of our church violates like our ethics. Um, and But I tell them in membership class and I tell them one-on-one -on -one when this happens, if I'm going to bring something up and ask you to step down from leadership for a while, it's so that you can refocus, not on serving, but on your relationship with Jesus. And, and I will be in it with you. Anytime I've asked a person to step down from leadership, I've always met with them more, not less. 
So when you see your brother or sister in sin, when you see a character flaw, when you see a blind spot, do you just gossip about them? Do you just cancel them? Do you just ignore them? Or are you willing to love, speak truth, and then journey with them? Because that's what Jesus is calling us to do. I know it's not easy. I know it's painful to hear. But when we prevent them from committing one sin, James says, we, convent, we prevent them from committing a lifetime of sin. You know, I think about my knees again. I, after I heard this from the doctor, I, I hated the news, right? I was expecting him to give me some PT so I could jump higher and spike harder. But instead, he told me that I can't play volleyball anymore. And I was so depressed. I remember when I got home, I was just moping around for a week. It's like Nina had to carry me to dinner, then to bed, then to the couch. I was just so sad. But you know what would be worse is if I didn't see the doctor for the next 10 years, if I never got an x-ray, and I just kept playing volleyball. And without knowing it, my cartilage would continue to deteriorate until there's no gap in my knee, and it's just bone on bone. And at that point, maybe I'm 45 or 48, I would have to get a knee replacement with no options. I wouldn't have the luxury of choice. The truth gives us another option. When someone shares truth with you or when you're willing to share truth with someone else, it's, give, it's putting a fork in the road and saying there's another way that's better, that's healthier, that, that might preserve your marriage or your character or, or you as a father and a friend. Choose that. We can't decide for anyone, but we can put a fork in the road and say, if you choose to walk toward the Lord, I will walk with you. I'm really challenged by this, the last few verses here. And we'll conclude in this section. It says, The prayer offered in faith will make a sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they, are, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. I wonder if we really believe verse 15, that our prayers are that effective, that we can pray boldly over the sick and expect them to be healed. We can pray for someone who's wrestling with addiction and expect freedom. I, I think I can easily shy away from this passage. You know, we can pray kind of like weak faith prayers, you know, and uh, make excuses for God not actually healing someone. Or we pray something, but we expect nothing. You know, prayer is not about us. Prayer is about God and his abilities and what he wants to happen. The, the example here is Elijah. Now, when James writes Elijah, immediately uh, his Jewish audience is thinking about the greatest prophet on earth. And everything he does just feels like, oh, that's nice. Yeah, Superman can do that. You know, there's this huge uh, void between 
Elijah and like me who goes to church on Sundays. But immediately following Elijah's name, James says he was a, a human being even as we are. He's building a bridge between us and Elijah, saying that we're the same. We're the same because we're both human. He's not superhuman, but we're both human praying to God who is powerful. Uh, I remember Mark Sosi, uh, my professor at Talbot, saying that everything Jesus did, another person did in the Old or New Testament. You know, when he raised the dead and Elijah raised the dead, he did like he calmed the storm. But, you know, Moses split the sea. He caused food to multiply and Moses asked manna to come down from heaven. That Jesus was not exemplifying primarily a life as God on earth. He was exemplifying a man on earth who knew and loved God and was fully empowered by the Spirit. He was showing us how we could live when we are dependent on, on the Spirit. In Matthew chapter 11, it says, Truly I tell you, among those who are born of women, there has not raised anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John was the last of the Old Testament heroes and prophets, the last of the old covenant heroes and prophets. He didn't have the spirit residing within him. He had the spirit outside of him empowering him. But Jesus is saying we're greater than Elijah, than Moses, than John the Baptist. Oh man, it, I feel like un, in, I feel like that's such an audacious statement that I'm like, okay, don't strike me down. But that's what Matthew 11:11, 11, 11, that's what Jesus was saying. Everyone who comes after John is in this new covenant where God gives us a spirit, where we have great power in our prayer, where we can turn to him and pray for the sick, pray for people who are caught up in sin, pray that God would do amazing things in our life and in the lives of many people around us. And again, silence and solitude allows us to pray effective prayers. Because it's in the silence we hear what God is doing. We tune our ears to his voice. And the prayer is only effective and powerful because we are echoing God's voice in our hearts. We are saying and doing what we see him saying and doing. Right? That's what Jesus says. I only do what I see my father doing. That's why every one of Jesus' prayer was answered because he would listen to the Spirit first and then pray it out. He was working in junction, in alignment with the Father. He wasn't praying for whatever he wanted. Being silent before the Lord allows us to hear his voice. And as we hear his voice over the people we're meeting with and asking, how can I speak life-giving words to them? As we're hearing his voice over people who are sick and he's saying, go and pray for that person. As we hear his voice over a friend who doesn't know him, but, but we, we know what questions to ask because of God is already working those questions in their heart. We get to see our prayers be effective. We get to see people raised up. We get to see people come to know him. Um, if you haven't noticed, I would love for you to join us. <laughs> 
to learn how to be silent before the Lord at 9 a.m., Monday through Fridays. But we had many of you come. We had about 20 people every day when everyone was quarantined, when, you know, all of us were furloughed. And so even if you can't join us at 9, but you experienced uh, silence and solitude and journeyed with us through that part of our church, don't forget it. Don't let it go. Practice it in every season, in, in the hard times of your life. Sit in front of Jesus. In the best times of your life, in the richest moments, sit in front of him. When you're sinning, sit in front of Jesus. When you're desiring to do ministry, sit with the Lord. And believe that when you're empowered by the Lord, he is going to use you. In every season, he's going to use you. He has purpose for you. And he's going to draw near to you. When I look at 2020, when we celebrate our anniversary, I don't see a wasted year. I see one of the best years of our church. Where we got to tackle sexual addiction together. What church has like almost a third of their people talking about this every week and sharing on that level? It's one of a kind experience for me in my 20 years of ministry. Being able to sit with many of you every morning to listen to the Lord day after day, week after week. God's done amazing things for our church and he's going to do more. And there's in, in every season, he's drawing near to us. We can leverage it to draw near to him. In every moment, we could discover more of his love. Jesus, we come to you, and I don't know where people are at this morning. I don't know whether they're going through the hardest moments of their life or whether they're just grateful to have their family around them and, and to be with their kids. I don't know if they're sick and in bed and it's hard for them to get up or if they just feel, feel like they're fighting sin every moment. I don't know where they are, but but you know exactly where they are, God. And it's not far from you. There's no season leads us away from you. Every season is, to, is meant for us to draw closer to you, to pray, to sing, to draw closer to community. God, I just pray for every person right now that they would make a decision to find you where they are, however they're feeling, whatever season they're in, that they would in this moment, say, God, help me to find you where I am. I don't have to travel to you. I don't have to um, wait for you. You're right here. Would you meet them, Jesus? We love you. We're grateful for you. We thank you that you're here. Amen.